The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, as we record this, we are really just a few days away from the opening ceremonies of the seventh ministerial meeting of the summit on the forum on China. Africa cooperation. Uh, this is a very big deal. We've been talking about it all month, exploring all different facets of the China-Africa relationship that will no doubt be raised next week in Beijing when 50 African leaders will be meeting together and also with their Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping uh, to talk about really the future of China-Africa relations. And so all month we've been kind of focusing on the environment, on media, on military affairs, but Really, what's going to come out of the forum is going to be a big number. The big number is it going to be 50 billion, 60 billion, 70 billion. And it's a financial package, a very, very complex financial package that a lot of it will be used to finance infrastructure and, and this physical type of development. It's really been the hallmark of Chinese aid. Now, what's interesting now is in the run up to this meeting, there's been a lot of speculation as to what will come of it. And the United States and, and certain Western academics have been raising a lot of concerns about how much money the Chinese are actually loaning to Africa. And we've talked with Judy Moore, who's the former uh, Liberian infrastructure minister and public works minister there, about the, the calculations and African agency in this decision and in this relationship to loan and to take on these loans. And so, Kobus, I guess my question for you is now that the meeting is finally here, and that we're going to be seeing a big number come out of it. We don't know exactly how much. Um, what is your feeling in terms of this debate that's raging about the, the effectiveness of these loans versus the impact that they'll have on African development? I think, you know, the issue of the loans don't stand alone. The issue of the loans are connected to Africa's whole economic future. Um, so, you, you know, I, I, there's a lot of debates in Africa at the moment about how Africa supposed is how Africa should move forward, especially because the population of Africa is so young. So, in theory, Africa has the opportunity to have a similar kind of growth spurt as China had and as Southeast Asia is having at the moment, where the majority of the population population is is young and and they they have a lot of energy and they can work um, and they can they can power you know kind of very rapid development however in order to do that Africa needs infrastructure um, and they need infrastructure in order to industrialize um, so without the infrastructure you find you have a very difficult situation where you have a lot of young people with nothing to do um, and so you know the, the the issue isn't simply whether whether um, Africa you, you know takes big loans or not the issue is is, is more how Africa is going Africa is going to move forward and if Africa doesn't move move forward it will be uh, a real weight on the, the entire global economy and if Africa does move forward it could actually drive the global economy into the in the future so I think it, you know it's it's a big issue that that affects all of us so the stakes are very very high which is why we thought that this would be the appropriate 
final show to do before the FOCAC summit, because it will be no doubt the centerpiece of the discussions going on in Beijing. And so to do that, we wanted to bring another insider. Uh, we had a lot of success with our program with Judy Moore because he was somebody who actually spoke from experience. This is a guy who sat across the table from his Chinese counterparts, negotiated the contracts, negotiated the loans, and implemented those construction projects. And we thought that was the way to approach this subject. So we are just absolutely thrilled and humbled that we are able to have Mr. Andrew Ali, who is the former CEO of the Africa Finance Corporation. Now, if for those of you not familiar with AFC, it's a public-private development finance institution based in Lagos. It's been around for about 11 years. Uh, he oversaw a, a portfolio of about $4.5 billion of investments in 30 countries across the continent. Uh, today, he's now a contributor for the online business news site, Quartz, and he joins us for the very first time on the program from London. Uh, Mr. Ali, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much. Uh, it's my honor to be on your program. It's great. Well, again, as I mentioned, you are somebody who actually sat across from the Chinese, and you recently wrote an article, I think it was your first article, for Quartz. How to separate the myths and realities of China's role in tackling Africa's infrastructure deficit. Uh, and it, what was so interesting about your article is that you spoke from experience. And I think a good way for us to start our discussion today, before we get into the nitty gritty of debt and infrastructure and loans and whether it makes sense, is why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience uh, over the years in working both with AFC and in other, you know, other business roles that you've had in dealing with the Chinese and talk a little bit about your, your point of view and where you're coming from on this topic. Well, so my own career has spanned at least the last 20 years um, doing investments in uh, Africa, mainly at um, mainly in, in infrastructure. So before I joined the AFC, I used to work for the International uh, Finance Corporation, um, also investing in infrastructure. So uh, it's it's interesting that I've seen first of all the the rise of uh, the Chinese uh, presence in the continent of Africa over the last couple of decades. Um, we've um, tried as much as possible, particularly when I was at AFC, to involve as many different sources of finance. I mean, we were really, you know, to be frank, pretty agnostic as to where uh, the investment was coming from and, and where the expertise was coming from, as long as it you know, was fit for purpose. And so we tried to sort of drum up um, as much business as we could with Chinese, uh, with the, the traditional funders, and also even uh, looking at investments uh, from the Middle East and, and other parts of Asia. So I've, I've had a sort of ringside seat to see how Chinese investment and Chinese activity in infrastructure in Africa has evolved over time. Certainly, um, a lot of it is done at a government-to-government -government level. And what you'll see at this summit and um, a lot of the numbers uh, that are announced are, um, are really going to be you know, loans to government to do big government-type infrastructure projects. Now, as, as those of us who've been working on infrastructure in Africa uh, know, in fact, a lot of where it's really happening and where the action is, is on the private sector side. And there we've seen uh, increasing Chinese involvement, uh, but that has been much slower uh, than, dealing than them dealing directly with governments, uh, which is, I think, what they're used to and the model that they've followed uh, even in other parts of the world. 
My own personal take on China, um, which I said in the article, is that for me, I think it's positive, um, not necessarily because Chinese investment is necessarily all good all the time. It isn't. It has its issues. Um, I think those issues are often exaggerated. Uh, but because it brings an element of uh, competition uh, into the whole mix, uh, it gives Africans and African uh, governments uh, more options, uh, more choice. And generally speaking, the more options you have, the better value you can get out of it. Of course, um, in your introduction, you spoke about uh, African governments and Africans needing to have agency. And in terms of dealing with infrastructure investors, it's important, whether it's the Chinese, whether it's the Americans or the Europeans, uh, to you know act from a position of having a certain degree of agency, making your own choices and doing what's best uh, for your own country. Because no matter which type of investor you're talking about, um, you are the one who has to take charge. And I think that that's somewhat the missing element in many of these um, in, um, in many of these discussions. You know, people talk as if African uh, governments or African countries are just sort of passive uh, receivers of, you know, these investments, uh, which sadly sometimes they are. But, you know, if you really want to develop your own economy, you've got to be an active participant. You've got to you know, sort of have a plan and look for people who are going to help you implement that plan rather than just sort of accepting what anybody chooses to, you know, quote unquote, give to you. So, you know, on, on the point of African agency, um, one of the examples that's raised um, frequently in the discussions around Chinese financing to, to Africa is the Standard Gauge Railway in Kenya, which is a lot of people have, have alleged that the Kenyan government essentially overpaid um, or paid much higher than world rates for for that railway and that there would have been much cheaper ways of, of getting the same work done. Um, I know you might not be able to speak to that particular example, but what what are some of the factors in your experience that that lead to um, African governments overpaying for these for these kind of projects? So uh, I would say two or three things tend to happen. One is very often governments have been struggling to get something off the ground. And therefore, when people offer something to them, uh, they don't necessarily, you know, how do I put it? They're just so grateful uh, that somebody is offering them some money or some sort of piece of infrastructure that they often sometimes fail to do their homework. Of course, as you said, I don't know the circumstances of the SGI in Kenya. So these are generic uh, statements, but often uh, they fail to do their homework and do um, sort of proper uh, benchmarking. Uh, the second point, which is really related to the first point, is that um, uh, what we have found anyway is that it's much better to have a competitive process. So uh, when I was at the AFC, uh, we uh, were one of the principals behind a big power project in Ghana. And in that particular case, 
we had uh, open tenders uh, for the contracting. And uh, we had a Chinese uh, consortium and we also had a South African consortium. And the first thing was that uh, by opening it up for competition, we reduced those prices by about 30%. And of course, we had good benchmarks because other people had made bids. And then as we, you know, as we went through the process and really dug into what was involved, we found in this case uh, that when you took all the costs into account, uh, the South African consortium actually worked out slightly cheaper. And, and the last point I think is possibly another thing that tends to happen in these projects is that the government's focus on uh, what we call the EPC cost, so the engineering procurement and contracting cost, which is you know the cost of actually physically building whatever piece of infrastructure it is. But there are actually a lot of other costs that go into the overall project, like the interest that you pay during the construction period, uh, the, um, the working capital cost to get it started up, all those kind of costs. And very often, uh, governments don't uh, factor those costs in. So again, if I go back to the Ghanaian example I gave, the actual EPC cost quoted by the Chinese uh, consortium was actually cheaper than that quoted by the South African consortium in this particular case. So, you know, one may have jumped on the Chinese offer. But actually, when you did the digging and you put in all the different financing costs, um, including some insurance that uh, the Chinese uh, consortium's finances, financiers sorry, were insisting upon, uh, then actually the Chinese offer worked out, as I said, slightly more expensively. Uh, thus, I, I think that you know, a lack of proper analysis is, is another factor. The final factor, and, and these are all somewhat interrelated, is, is inadequate uh, preparation and also uh, inadequate project management. Uh, the first part of that, inadequate preparation, so very often with these big civil engineering projects, if you don't do what they call the sort of geoengineering uh, properly, then you can find during construction that maybe you need more foundations than, than had already been uh, originally been thought about, or you may even have to deviate around somewhere. Um, and if you find these things out halfway through, it can be uh, incredibly expensive because you're now making a deviation from the original contract. Uh, the second point is lack of project management. So you have to make sure that you project manage these um, the implementations of these contracts uh, very tightly. Um, you have to make sure there are as few changes as possible because every change, as I said, costs uh, an awful lot. And you also have to make sure that it continues to track on time because if you add time to these things, the costs can escalate very quickly. So unfortunately, when you're doing billion dollar uh, plus projects, they get very, very complicated. And what we often find is that, you know, simply because they haven't done that many projects before, uh, African governments are very uh, often inadequate in terms of being able to handle the technical aspects of these projects. And then this leads to um, things going out of control and cost escalations. 
Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. Well, let's pick up the conversation there because that leads us into the negatives about this. So you've talked about how running these projects is very, very complex and particularly these billion dollar infrastructure projects, which many African states have not had. And so you run into maybe a skills shortage in terms of project managing from the point of view on the African side. And then you talk about in your article how so much of the issues of quality and labor, these are some of the most sensitive issues in the China-Africa infrastructure discussion, are on the burden of the African side, not the Chinese side. So a lot of people will see a road that's falling apart and they'll blame the Chinese contractor. When in fact, as you're pointing out, that a lot of this might have come from the engineering and the project management that should have been done originally by the African partner side. Or on the labor side, which is arguably the most sensitive political issue, where people have, you know, remember Michael Sada many years ago, the former president of Zambia said, I'm never going to have a Chinese pushing a wheelbarrow in my country. Yes. But these are points for you to negotiate, and yet that's not happening. So it brings me up to to the point that came up this week. I don't know if you saw it in the Financial Times. Uh, Luke Patey, who is a senior researcher at the Danish Institute for International Studies, wrote a very provocative column saying the Chinese model is failing in Africa. And in many ways, he echoed what the White House and the United States has been saying for at least a year now, that China is basically encircling Africa with debt. And because maybe either intentionally or unintentionally, and I mean by unintentionally, is that maybe this, the skills aren't there on and the Democratic Republic of Congo or in places like Chad to handle these kinds of deals. So what ends up happening is they take on massive amounts of loans and they're not doing what you want them to do, which is to competitively bid them out, make sure that these contracts are negotiated well, make sure that the, and the, all the projects are, are managed well and properly project scoped and whatnot. And so that's not happening. So I'm curious to get your feedback as the volume of criticism about Chinese debt rises in Africa for these infrastructure loans. And at the same time, you're pointing out the fact that maybe some of the burden for that responsibility is on the African side. So talk to us a little bit about that debate that's going on right now and how you see it. Well, I, I saw that op-ed, I think it was in yesterday's uh, Financial Times or maybe over the weekend. Um, and it raised some some interesting points. Uh, I think, you know, obviously there's some truth in, in what he said, but I also uh, think the, the spin is a little bit different because uh, just before I go into the specifics, I'd, I'd like to point out that back in the early 2000s, uh, there was a big debt crisis in Africa, and you know there was a major debt relief effort called the high um, highly indebted poor countries um, effort um, which uh, relieved the debt of a lot of African countries and some other countries around the world now the The point here is that that debt crisis um, because the Chinese weren't investing and weren't really lending in the 70s and 80s, that debt crisis was actually not caused uh, by the Chinese quote-unquote uh, model. Um, and the, the fact is that uh, I think it's up to really um, each government at the end of the day 
to you know be able to assess and decide uh, what debt to take on, how much debt to take on, etc. And you know you have agencies like the World Bank and the IMF. Um, much as those can be somewhat unpopular in certain African countries, uh, who are geared up to advise on, you know, debt sustainability, debt capacity, etc. Now, I think that um, going going more specific than this, again, very often, unfortunately, there are quite a few countries in Africa where the capacity, uh, for various reasons, is 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 relatively low. Uh, one, to assess the overall uh, macro uh, uh, condition of the country. And secondly, you know, to uh, be able to assess and negotiate these projects. Um, and when you combine that, that can lead uh, to the wrong decisions being made. Often, um, infrastructure projects are uh, being um, done often for ego or for prestige purposes and not necessarily because uh, they will generate uh, a large financial or economic return. So, for example, you know, having a very nice uh, soccer stadium uh, in your capital city probably isn't going to generate the same sort of economic bounce as having a, an up-to-date airport might so, I, and I think that um, the one thing is that the Chinese, um, and obviously one is, you know, hugely generalizing talking about the Chinese, but the Chinese tend not to second guess um, what African countries are doing in the same way that certain uh, Western, particularly aid-related uh, financiers may second guess. But, you know, I think that that is a very large generalization and uh, you know there are a lot of white elephant projects that have also been financed you know from western sources using western contractors um, so again really i think for me the onus is really on the countries um, to have responsibility uh, for what they're doing to make sure that they are sort of doing projects that are going to have an economic benefit and that those projects are uh, implemented uh, properly so as to maximize the chances of those economic benefits uh, occurring. And finally, to ensure that, uh, you know, on a macro level, even if a particular project is, is good, that on a macro level, you're not overextending yourself in terms of doing that project. Now, as I said before, um, I'm not naive enough to suggest that all African countries have the technical capability to do this, but I think that that capability uh, rests in a number of uh, of African countries. Certainly, uh, the country in which I'm based in Nigeria, you know, has vast um, amounts of technical uh, capability. Um, other smaller countries uh, do as well. Um, so it's not this is not something that is lacking. Uh, in Africa, but I think it's also it, it does lack in certain areas, and even countries that are generally 
well equipped uh, may not have expertise in, say, uh, you know, large nuclear power stations or or large um, uh, even hydro projects, for example, if they haven't done any or if they haven't done any in several decades. And, you know, that's the point at which people need to, or countries need to also realize that, okay, uh, this is getting a little bit beyond us and, you know, let's get some uh, help. And, you know, again, there are agencies like the African Development Bank, like the World Bank, um, other private consultancies that they can hire uh, to help them in terms of uh, managing these projects. And when I say managing, I don't mean just the project management, but the overall um, management of the project from the beginning to the end to ensure that it does have uh, a successful outcome. So a lot, I, I, I guess, where I'm coming from is that a lot of um, the burden of responsibility ultimately lies uh, with the governments of the countries concerned and they need to perhaps uh, do more than they have been doing to make sure that those outcomes are positive and not negative. One of the, the themes that we hear a lot in China-Africa um, issues is the the call for Africa to negotiate more collectively with China, either as a, as a continent or as in the form of regional economic communities like ECOWAS or, or the Southern African Development Community. You know, in your experience as someone who's worked with the, on the ground with these projects, is that a realistic idea? Is that is that, is it possible for Africa to to work with China and other financiers in that way, or are they doomed to to work in in a kind of a bilateral relationship always? So I um, I don't think that's a very realistic uh, prospect, uh, in the sense that. Most projects, not all projects, um, but most projects actually are within an individual country. And uh, thus, it's very hard to understand how a sort of collective negotiation uh, might work. Um, the second point is that actually when you are doing something collectively involving a number of different governments, the complexity of that goes up uh, exponentially. And um, even if you're trying to do it through an organization like, let's say, the African Union, most of the governments, in, and let's say it's a regional project, so it actually does involve uh, more than one country, uh, most of the governments that would be involved in that, if not all of them, would still want to keep their own individual sovereignty and therefore, you know, they wouldn't fully delegate uh, any kind of negotiation. I mean, in in reality, I mean, they may say it, but in reality, they're not going to fully delegate negotiation of something that would involve their sovereignty, involve them maybe taking on debt or liabilities for the next 30 years um, to, you know, some third party organization, whether it's the AU, whether it's the World Bank or whomever, to do it, you know, collectively on their behalf. So they'd all want a seat, you know, either at the negotiating table or at a table in, uh, metaphorically speaking, a side room, you know, behind the negotiating table where they can sort of tell the negotiator what they want. 
Um, so I, in practical reality, I, I don't think that that's, uh, that's really um, a solution uh, to, to the problem. Uh, I think for me, the solution to the problem is really, um, firstly, for governments to take a realistic uh, look at their own capabilities and where they they see gaps to to you know be humble enough to call in for help, and you know that help can be either a sort of public organization like the African Development Bank or uh, private consultancies or a combination of both. And uh, certainly in the long run, spending you know a million dollars, say, paying consultancy fees um, to private consultants. Uh, to to sort of get a sort of two billion dollar port or power plant or airport implemented well, uh, you know, is 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 actually money very well spent. Very quickly, because I know you're very tight on time, and we're we're almost out of time ourselves. Uh, when most people are listening to this program, the Forum on China Africa Cooperation Summit will be underway. African leaders will be negotiating. They're going, a lot of them, with very big wish lists. I know President Uru Kenyatta, uh, also Ghana's president, are going with big infrastructure asks to Beijing. Um, like to kind of have you look forward a little bit. They're going to come out of this meeting with a lot of money and a lot more loans coming their way. Are you generally optimistic about the future and the debt for infrastructure deals that are being done? Or are you becoming increasingly nervous, like a lot of people are, that the money is just getting up too high? Well, I would answer that in in um, in in two ways, um, both in very general terms. So the first one is that, um, if, as I said right at the beginning, if you look at um, at the last two decades, uh, China has come from virtually zero uh, to being the fourth largest uh, investor in infrastructure assets in Africa after the US, UK, and France, who are the sort of, uh, well, the, the last two are the traditional colonial powers uh, in Africa, and then the US, obviously, the world's largest economy. So China is a significant player. And as I said in the article, I think that the added competition that China brings is a positive thing because it provides more choice to African countries and um, puts pressure on other people to improve their terms. So to that extent, I think that the Chinese involvement in Africa is a positive thing. Um, the second point I want to make is that, um, as I mentioned, back in the early 2000s, there was a lot of debt uh, forgiveness. And that meant that the fiscal uh, position or the monetary positions of many African countries improved uh, very significantly because the debt to GDP ratios were cut very substantially and to a sustainable uh, point. Uh, sadly, since then, rather than sort of using that reset as a, as a way of being more prudent, uh, since then, debt to GDP ratios across Africa have generally been increasing. And um, certainly earlier this year, I believe the IMF uh, produced a report talking about them being concerned about a number of African countries getting into a position where their debt is becoming less and less uh, sustainable. Now, the reason why I'm making these very general points 
is that those countries accumulating debt for projects which are sort of quote-unquote Chinese is certainly part of the problem. But I'm sure that not all of that debt is going to Chinese investors. And that issue is really more one about general uh, macroeconomic management or poor macroeconomic management on the part of certain but not all countries rather than a particular problem to do with Chinese infrastructure investment leading to debt. Uh, the, the, the final point I would make is that, again, overall, infrastructure is a very necessary uh, part of development. You can't develop your countries without having infrastructure, but it's got to be the right infrastructure. And, you know, if the Chinese are willing to put that right infrastructure in, I'm happy to take it. If it's the Americans, the British, the French, I'm also happy to take it. What I want to see is development in, in Africa. And I think that uh, whoever is going to help us uh, to develop is, is, you know, should be welcomed uh, positively. The article is How to Separate the Myths and Realities of China's Role in Tackling Africa's Infrastructure Deficit. It is required reading this week. Don't walk, run to get this article from Quartz Africa. You can find it at QZ.com. Just look for Andrew Ali, A-L-L-I is how you'll find his last name. And Andrew uh, is the former CEO of the Africa Finance Corporation, a public-private development finance institution based in Lagos, where he spent years overseeing billions of dollars in infrastructure investment across 30 countries in Africa. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time. Your insights were invaluable, particularly at this time uh, of the summit. And uh, we'd like to come back to you in a few in a few weeks and months to see kind of what came out of it and uh, and where we go with all the infrastructure discussion that is no doubt going to continue. Thank you for having me on. And I'd be very glad to, to have a follow up on this. Thank you so much. Thank you. Kobus, I have to say that I'm more confused now than before we started this program. I, <laughs> I was starting to I just don't know where to kind of come down on this, because on the one hand, I understand where the critics are coming from in saying that the debt is rising at an unsustainable level and to the point where you simply will not be able to generate the necessary economic activity to pay back the billions of dollars that countries like Kenya, Uganda, Ghana are taking on and Djibouti as well. On the other hand, when you speak to people like Judy Moore and you speak to people like Andrew, who we just talked to. You hear this nuance, you hear this calculation, you hear all of this subtlety that's missing from the rest of the debate. And, and again, I don't know if Luke Patey's article in the Financial Times helped things or not. We're going to speak with Luke actually in a coming show to get his take on it. But it really sparked an enormous amount of conversation online because it fits one of the negative narratives that's being actively promoted by the United States, I don't think constructively, to say that this is danger. And of course, they usually bring up the fact that the port in Sri Lanka was repoed by the Chinese as example of what can happen. I take Judy Moore's kind of point on that, that of all the things that the Chinese have invested, the hundreds of deals that they've done around the world, we're only talking about one repo, one repossession. So that to me doesn't kind of mark a trend. And the interesting thing, I th and I thought Andrew was going to go there, was the fact that I think the story is too young right now for us to come to any firm conclusions about what the Chinese are going to do with all this debt. We don't know if all of these countries are going to be forced to have to pay back this debt. We've seen some debt relief in Zimbabwe. We've seen them be flexible in Venezuela. And this is kind of a point that Matt Furchin, who's the China Latin America scholar, makes as well. 
saying that there's a lot of nuance in how the Chinese approach the debt issue. So for us to, for anybody to come down on one side or the other, it may be premature. And that's where my confusion lies, because I just don't know how to feel about this. I agree. I mean, it's very, it's very difficult. Um, for me, it, it comes back to, uh, you know, also the, the reality that Africa has to find some kind of way to develop. Um, what I find disingenuous frequently in the in the Western way of looking at this as, you know, Chinese debt as this kind of strategic tool to trap countries is they they tend to pretend that those countries have very easy other options for financing. Um you know, that they shouldn't go to the Chinese, they should just go to the World Bank, or that they should just go to Western lenders. And they, that leaves out two, two crucial details. In the first place, a lot of African debt is Western debt. Despite the, you know, despite all of the, the um, debt forgiveness, um, highly indebted poor country program that, that wiped out some of that debt, a lot of, that, a lot of African debt at the moment is not only Western debt, but it's Western private debt. Um, which which tends to run at high interest rates. So that's that's an issue to take into account. The other one is that frequently for especially for big projects like airports, you know, frequently you know governments would just wait years and years to to kind of put together a deal with Western lenders on these big projects, um, and then you know from the Western from the kind of the the perspective you know the the debt book kind of critic perspective that we that we've seen coming out a lot of the uh, out of the US that seems to be just okay you know it's okay for for country x in africa to struggle on for years and years without without an airport um without taking into account the kind of domino effect that has on the the you know the effect on, on the the prosperity of the entire country the entire subregion and then the 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 role on effect that has on migration to europe and you know religious radicalization and other kinds of terrorism and you know all, all of these different issues um for me they they frequently there, there seems to be a lack of urgency, you know, in this discussion, c c frequently coming from Western critics, um, which tend to then, you know, underplay some of the pressures faced by African governments when they take on Chinese debt. I think it's very important to to be realistic about the kind of pressures that Africa faces um, when you when you're talking about these choices. And it's much more complicated than is reflected on social media, where I think too many people have this attitude of it's easy to solve. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. And, and that's why for a lot of people following the discussion online, it's hard to know what to feel. And I think that's why, although Andrew was very, very kind of thorough and detailed, it gets complicated. And that's why his input, I think, is so important for us to really listen to. Also, I think go back and read his article uh, carefully. Um, he seems to be well-balanced in it, recognizing the risks, but at the same time acknowledging what Kobus is talking about, how there are tremendous opportunities tapping into Chinese capital, but it has to be managed well. And a lot of the burden, and this is something also missing from the debate that I think Andrew brought up, a lot of the burden falls on the African side. Africans are not victims here, and this is one of the key themes of our program here, is that the labor issue is a point of negotiation. The skills transfer is a point of negotiation. And those negotiations, after they are agreed in the contracts, have to be enforced. So we come back to the core issue of governance. And, the, uh, you yeah. know, yeah, go ahead. No, the, the, you know, kind of just, just linking to that, we come to the core issue of governance, but also... You know, even if you have sterling A1 platinum grade governance, development is still a, a messy process. You know, so, uh, you know, frequently, 
the the systems that um, that Western countries criticize other developing countries for not following, those systems frequently came after long long processes of quite messy development. You know, and and a lot of a lot of the, the kind of big infrastructure development that we that that now you know eases you know Western economic life and Western economic growth, a lot of those systems, the, you know, the, the subway system in New York, for example, those, you know, those big massive systems were put in a long time ago. Um, the, 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 one of the values of, of China's relationship with Africa is the fact that China put in those systems quite recently. And if you look at the Chinese experience of development, it was not easy. I mean, they did a lot of stuff right, but they did a lot of stuff wrong. And, you know, they made a lot of mistakes in the process. And I, I don't think you really get to develop without making those kind of mistakes. So I sometimes find it a little unfair that, you know, that people would cherry pick, you know, three or four kind of examples of, of projects that came in over budget in Africa and then go, oh, see, see, this is, this is completely corrupt. It's completely impossible. You know, they should just consider a different model. Um, you know, it's like, you, you know, this is, this is a long process um, and some mistakes are going to get made. And of, of course, one needs to do as much as you can to avoid corruption and to make sure that the deals are the best deals that you can get and to do due diligence, as Andrew said. But at the same time, it's not a, it's not a foolproof process. What do you think? This is a, a, an emotive issue. It's very, very powerful. People have very strong opinions on all sides. We'd like to hear from you. You know, we, we have these discussions going on online all the time. You can find me on LinkedIn, where we have a very robust conversation, also on Facebook, Twitter. Uh, email us directly. Uh, you can find me at eric at chinaafricaproject.com. We're still getting Kobus's email <laughs> sorted out. So if you want to talk to Kobus, just send it to me, and I will pass it on to him <laughs> as well. So we love getting emails from you about what you think, and, uh, and we're going to have a and speaking of which, uh, future shows, we're going to have uh, Luke Patey on coming up very soon to talk about uh, his article in the Financial Times that he wrote about China's failing model in Africa. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. That's the end of our month-long wrap leading up to the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit. Once again, just a quick reminder... We have these reporting guides, these 10 fact sheets that you can find both on my LinkedIn page, also uh, on Twitter as well, and, and on our newsletter. So they're all over. If you want the fact sheets and you haven't received it, uh, just email me again. My email is in the show notes here. I'd be happy to send them to you in either English or in Chinese. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.